Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by a very special guest, Christine Anderson, the Global Head of External Relations at Blackstone, where she oversees the public affairs, marketing, and ESG functions of the business. Christine has a unique background compared to past guests on our show. Prior to joining Blackstone, she served as the Director of Marketing and Communications for the former Governor of New York. She was an Associate Director of Corporate Communications at UBS, was a segment producer for Good Morning America, and served as the Deputy Press Secretary for the Kerry Edwards 2004 presidential campaign, in addition to serving in the Clinton administration. If that's not enough, today, Christine also serves on the boards of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, the Blackstone Charitable Foundation, and Bumble. We discussed a wide range of topics, from her career trajectory and advice, how corporate governance has evolved over the years, and her current role managing ESG and public affairs at one of the largest financial firms in the world. We also touched on how future leaders can be more involved in public affairs and corporate governance to shape the businesses and companies around them. Christine had incredible insights to share, and we are so pleased to have her on today's show. So without further delay, here is Christine Anderson. Christine Anderson, it is such a pleasure and privilege to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. I have been incredibly excited for us to talk today. I want to dive right in since we have limited time. You have such an impressive and an interesting story. And I'd love for you to start off our conversation today by just sharing your story and your career background for our audience. Thanks, Ross. So nice to be here. Nice to be talking to you. My story is pretty simple. I, you know, I've been at the Blackstone the last 13 years. And happy to share some of those observations with everyone. But you know, I got my start in politics. Going back to you know early days in, in high school, I worked on a Senate campaign in 96 in North Carolina for an African-American man running against Jesse Helms. So you can imagine quite a tough race that we had. And that kind of launched, launched my interest and in career in politics. So from there, went to the Clinton White House and worked in the press office there. And and then after that, you know, when the administration ended, I was forced to kind of figure out what to do next when I had my dream job. And, you know, I kind of got this idea that, that people in New York City didn't quite understand politics and those in D.C. didn't quite understand Wall Street. And I thought if I could kind of waltz between the two over time, you know, might make me more marketable. And in the end, I think I learned a lot through that whole process. But that's basically my story. I'm in and out of financial communications and political jobs, ending up at Blackstone 13 years ago. Christine, I appreciate the very succinct story for what is an incredible career. You mentioned your career began in the Clinton White House in the press room there. And then at a point, you were also a segment producer for Good Morning America. You have decades of experience in the media landscape on both you know, public sector, in the media itself, in the private sector. How has the media changed, in your opinion, over time throughout your career? Even just in the last few years, I'd say it's changed dramatically. You know, I remember coming to Blackstone from, I was working for the governor of New York, where I was used to dealing with, you know, the tabloids every week and every weekend and sort of the city hall reporters. And I came to Blackstone and I was just, it was so refreshing to deal with reporters who'd been covering your 
company or your sector for a long time and they they wrote the facts and but even even then like over the last like 5 years or so even even the business press has changed a lot and i'm sure many many listening to this podcast you know are familiar with this but even straight business outlets that used to just kind of cover straight business news you know, I, you know, it's mean much more, a little bit more polarized and much more focused on sort of entertainment value and whatnot. So it, it, you know, the media has changed and I'd say there's also just more turnover with reporters. You don't see these, you know, crusty old beat reporters that, that have been on the beat for 20 years. You're kind of constantly, you know, seeing new reporters coming to the beat. You're seeing new outlets that are, that are entering the scene, online outlets, whatnot. And then you're, and then you've got like the social media dynamic where, everyone's a reporter. So it really has the whole, the whole landscape for people in my line of work has really changed. Yeah. I see so much rhetoric uh, on Twitter, on all my media channels and my conversations day to day about the polarization and not just rhetoric, but pure raw data about the polarization that we're seeing today. Back in my time at Twitter, we launched the ranking algorithm to the home timeline. And I was a very, very vocal advocate for doing that very carefully because there was all these studies coming out about the ideological echo chambers that Facebook was creating. I was internally like, we can't follow suit. You know, we're the last platform in the world where you could come in and hear different perspectives. And I, I fought that fight very hard. So I, I relate personally. And I appreciate you sharing your experience working with reporters across different landscapes. Before Blackstone, you were deeply involved in both, of course, federal and state government. You studied political science. And now you've spent 13 years here at Blackstone. What are some of the key differences you've seen between government institutions and financial institutions and how they operate and make decisions? Sure. Very, they're, they're very different. I'd say for those that have spent time in politics, it's the pace is just so rapid, right? So I'll keep it more specific to roles like mine where, you know, in communications, you're I mean, every day it's just a new news cycle and you're just kind of dealing with a barrage of incoming. On the corporate side, it's usually particular moments and events that really will drive news coverage for a while and then things will quiet down and then it comes back up again when when you know, there's a new event or moment. But but in politics, it is just this always on, which is why it's a great training ground. And I tend to hire a lot of people from politics just because you know that they can handle, you know, quite a, quite a bit of volume. Interesting. Interesting. I suppose that translates well into finance where there's so much volume, uh, at least volume of work, I should say. <laughs> there's a lot of volume. There's a lot of volume. <laughs> it's so interesting. I would love to talk about Blackstone a little bit. You're the global head of external relations. You oversee Blackstone's public affairs, marketing, and ESG functions. I would love to understand how the firm has evolved over time. And if you can share a bit today, because you've been there for a long time as the firm's grown and changed alongside Stephen Schwarzman, other leaders of the firm, can you tell all of our listeners about Blackstone and the firm's focuses today? Sure. Well, and for those of you that don't know us, we're the largest investor in alternatives globally. And that basically a simple model. We invest on behalf of big institutions like you know sovereign wealth funds and public pension plans. And we put that money to work investing in companies and assets around the world. And then after you know having some thesis around what needs to be fixed, typically we'll sell those assets off at the right point in the, in, in the cycle and, and return money to our investors. It's a pretty simple business model. And you know I'd say the firm has just really changed over the, even the 13 years that I've been here. It looks vastly different today than when I joined. When I joined, it was about 700 people. And today it has many, many more different lines of business and products. And we're even offering, you know, alternatives to individuals, which is a really like new frontier for us. I'd love to hear more about the reputation 
right? That Wall Street faces. I think being in the alternative space, in the private equity space, of course, in the earliest days, primarily, and now Blackstone becoming a founding partner of Scholars of Finance, right? Becoming one of our sponsors. You and I have talked about this in our prior conversations. Finance has suffered from a severe reputational challenge. Movies like Wolf of Wall Street, like Wall Street, right? The Jordan Belforts, the Gordon Geckos depict the worst stereotypes, an industry made up of egotistical, greedy, selfish men who just want to get rich at all costs. And at Scholars of Finance, we recognize and we talk a lot about how finance plays an enormous role in society, can actually be a very noble field where good people can come together and deploy capital to help others, right? to solve the world's problems, to advance ESG, to advance climate change efforts, to advance our efforts to eradicate poverty and hunger. And the industry is also full of very kind, thoughtful, generous people. I was lucky enough to have a mentor take a chance on me and give me an internship at Piper Sandler with zero finance background. So I'm a beneficiary of the generosity of some of the people in the industry myself. And now at Scholars of Finance, all of our work is driven by investors and firms like Blackstone supporting us as a nonprofit. Given your background, I think you have an especially interesting perspective on this. What are your thoughts on the reputation of the finance industry? I think you're right. I mean, I, I do think there's just this gap between sort of the reality of what the industry is and what people perceive it to be. I think the industry has done a lot over the last 20, 30 years, you know, around firm culture and ways in which we even train our people and, you know, zero tolerance for discrimination, things like this, that not to say that every firm gets it right, but there's been a lot invested in that space. You know, that's just one example. But in more broadly, to your point about kind of macroeconomic impact, I mean, private capital is just critical, right, to making the world function. You know, no small business gets off its feet. No, you know, homeowner is able to get a mortgage. You kind of go from the think about, you know, emerging economies, right, that, you know, they all need sort of financial institutions to help them thrive. And finance really just fuels progress, right? And yet somehow that's been, you know, over time has sort of been given a very bad name. And, you know, I'll speak from just my own personal experience, you know, being in private equity is like being on like, the bad street on the worst neighborhood, right? And so that's because of an outdated view of what the industry is and how we operate. So my job just day in and day out is, is helping to kind of just break that down, talk about very simple terms, like what is it we actually did, take examples from the companies we've invested in, what we've done at those companies, how they've grown, and over and over and over again, right? And sharing that. But that, I think, you know, our industry, you know, it's not called private equity for nothing. I mean, they really did sort of stay private for many, many years. And I think that that hasn't done us many favors, but I think thankfully, you know, a lot of our peer firms are out there now and we're comfortable kind of sharing the work that they do. And, and so hopefully we can start shifting perceptions, but I do think it's, I do think it's a bit of an uphill battle for the financial industry more broadly, you know, with growing populism and polarization, it's challenging to kind of match that megaphone that, you know, others have in terms of being able to share the positive end of what we're doing and the people that we have doing that work and, you know, focus on doing it in a, in a very high integrity and social, you know, socially responsible way. But I do believe over time, not to get too long-winded, but things like, you know, you mentioned ESG, private capital can move really fast. So think, take, you know, decarbonization, right? For example, the world needs global, it needs to decarbonize. And you can take a firm like Blackstone that can take, we have a massive portfolio, right? And when you can start to help work with those companies to bring down emissions in a very short-term measurable way, that makes our companies more valuable. It's making them stronger and more resilient and like impact on the world is great. So I, I think some of the stuff where you, like in, in my industry, industry specifically, you're going to start to see a shift 
Whereas as our firms really mobilize to address some of these global challenges, I think people are going to take a different look. I'm encouraged hearing it and I appreciate it. I want to ask you one more question really quickly about the reputation of the industry. And I think you've already partially answered the question, but I'm curious when you look at the reputation that Wall Street has today, I oftentimes talk about like the financial crisis, you know, it took arguably less than 1% of finance professionals and some maybe regulation that could have been a little bit tighter to lead to the entire global economy melting down. Right. Oftentimes, you know, a few bad apples spoil the bunch, as they say. But that's not necessarily an excuse that, that we can't use that to kind of run away from the, the mistakes that the financial industry has made in the past. But we, like you said, we can chart a reputation that is, I think, as not only aspirational, but reflects the good that finance does. And we should try that. So I'm curious, you know, if you were to write the reputation of finance, what is a reputation that you think finance should have? And that really that, I guess, to make the question more pointed, that you hope that all of us in the industry earn for the profession in the years ahead. I'll come back to, I guess, my prior answer a little bit. I think it, as, as an industry, if we were to focus on the impact of that capital, there's no problem. You're a for-profit organization, right? If you work in a financial institution, it's okay to make money, but like, how do you make the money? And, and what's the impact of that work? You know, focusing more on that is really important. And it's not an easy thing to do that. It's got to be something that has to be done day in, day out, example after example. And, you know, finding ways also to create economic opportunity for others. So I think, you know, shining a light on ways that, you know, if you're supporting a community banking program or if, if you're helping provide career mobility and opportunity, things like that, where I think these things are happening, you and I both see them and see them at scale. And we just need to do, I think, a better job of telling those stories. Going back to what you said about the financial crisis, I do think the industry, when there have been issues, does move to, you know, pretty quickly to to clean itself up and fix problems that exist. Not in every case, certainly. But I think that's also at our firm, right? You know, it's it's drilled into your head from the moment you get here. Integrity, high integrity is is like first and foremost. And this is how we operate and and why these values are important. And and I think there's a lot of that going on. I certainly hear that from my my peers in the financial industry and and I don't, I think people would be surprised if they came and they spent, they spent time at firms like ours and, and to see kind of how people function, the types of people that are here, what motivates them. So. I completely agree. Um, it was actually the CEO of Piper Jaffray when it was Piper Jaffray, now Piper Sandler, Andrew Duff coming and giving a talk about the firm's mission, vision, and values. And that actually is part of the inspiration for scholars of finance, right? This generation of millennials and Gen Z who want to make an impact and want to create economic opportunity, among other things, in finance. Like you said earlier. If I can just interject for one minute, though, I think, you know, everyone you know, purpose-driven companies are, I think, captivating people right now, right? And that's, I think, people coming out of college, they want to they want to work at purpose-driven companies. I think they would be surprised if you looked at financial institutions and organizations like mine at how purpose-driven they are. And so that I think, I think people need to sort of expand in their mind, their definition of purpose and, and to maybe give finance, a, you know, a try if that's what's motivating them. I could not agree more. And for all of our students listening, I hope you're listening very closely. I would love to segue back into a conversation about ESG, CSR, corporate social responsibility within finance has really evolved and become integrated into our investment decision-making in the form of ESG, um, these environmental, social, and governance considerations. Can you elaborate a little bit more for our listeners, your perspective on ESG and why it's important? Sure. Well, so I, I oversee ESG today at Blackstone and came into it by accident. A great example of how if you care about something and, and volunteer yourself, you can ultimately end up owning it. But um, 
I came into the firm and my, my job was really reputational risk. And so, of course, if you think about reputational risk, you're, of course, going to find your way to ESG, or as we used to call it, CSR. And you're looking at all these factors that might impact an ultimate investment's success, right? And are there going to be environmental litigation or labor disputes or other, other factors that might ultimately impact the value of that company? And so I think that's where finance has really focused on ESG, but I think that's really changing in the last couple of years. And you certainly see firms taking a, a new approach. For us, it's become a major investment theme, right? As the world moves to decarbonize, that creates a lot of opportunity, right? To help develop winners that are going to help support companies in their efforts to decarbonize. And there are many other examples of that. So for us, there's like kind of a life cycle. It's we, we think about ESG on the way into an investment. We, throughout our period of ownership, we're trying to improve the company and a number of different ESG metrics. And that ultimately for us is very aligned with just our core business. I mean, I, ESG is so easy for us at Blackstone because it makes stronger companies, right? Our, our whole mission is to create more you know, companies that are, that are that where we can accelerate their growth and make them more resilient and sustainable. And those companies end up being valued higher and you end up doing better on exit typically. And ultimately, those the stakeholders for, of that individual company, their customers and whatnot, they are going to care about these factors. So you'd better be thinking about them on the way in and helping the company, bringing your expertise to help that company along their journey, whatever it might be with respect to what's material to them from an ESG standpoint. So I get really excited about it because I think it's just, it's all a part of kind of our core function. How do we build stronger companies? So I think there's an awareness that's coming in the financial industry that, that not only is this a massive investable opportunity set, but additionally, it's critical. And it's not just risk mitigation. Like I think we all saw this for years, but it's really just, again, you know, a place where we're seeing a lot of innovation and a lot of opportunity. I love that you explicitly state that it's not simply risk mitigation, right? There is an opportunity and there's a responsibility, I think. I get really excited talking about ESG too. And it actually, I think, segues into my next question, which is that to my surprise, ESG has become a bit controversial in the investing world. Some people accuse firms of using ESG as a form of greenwashing, the first sort of dissenting view. And the other major issue, number two that I hear, is that there aren't uniform standards. I'm curious, what are your thoughts or replies to those who call it greenwashing? And number one, and number two, what do you say to those who lament the lack of a single set of standards for companies to utilize? Look, I tend to be more sympathetic to like this challenge because everything in this space is so new. And even the regulations are are still new. And globally, countries are moving at different paces and everyone's trying to interpret what different moves mean. I think where I come at it is be just really focused on data, right? Really making sure that you have the facts and that you back every statement up with fact. And I think if you can start there and really still be ambitious in your own plan for your own company and and your own ambitions for what you want your, your ESG program to be, I think as long as you really are careful and conservative in kind of how you talk about that externally, I think you'll be in an okay place. But it is, it's a really challenging, challenging space right now. I think, you know, obviously, I think, you know, SEC and others really spending time thinking about how to hold companies accountable and how to have more transparency, which I think is, is again, over time, this is, this is coming. And, and every company that's represented on this, on this call is, 
thinking about how to move and advance and get and get prepared for that. You know, we're certainly we've spent the better part of a year focused on getting accurate data out of our portfolio companies and making sure that we have the systems in place to do that. We spent a lot of time coordinating with colleagues across the firm. So it's a big thorny challenge. But again, if you look at it all from a, a risk standpoint, I think you'll end up missing that there are other wonderful opportunities out there. So not an uncomplicated topic, but one everyone's mobilizing around. Right. And oftentimes the most important topics are some of the most complicated, right? Yeah. And also I'd say, you know, just thinking about what's really material for your company, right? And starting there. And those are areas where you can have, you can probably make the greatest headway and and have the biggest impact, but you don't need to think about ESG as so all encompassing and and touching everything. And that's, if you can be a little bit more hyper-targeted, I think it sometimes results in better outcomes. Absolutely. One thought that one of my friends shared with me not too long ago was when you look back at gap principles and generally accepted accounting principles, there was a point in history where there was not one single standard for accounting principles. There were lots of different ways companies accounted their basic PL, their basic cash flows and balance sheet and financial activities. And over time, we coalesced around you know a set of standards and, and now we have gap that we all agree to. And we do have a number of players. SASB and others who are creating sets of standards, um, you're seeing consolidation. And I think it's only a matter of time until we have one set that companies you know, across the country and across the globe can all look to that we've agreed upon that are indicative of stakeholder conscientiousness. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, investors like certainty. We can pretty much deal with anything, but we but we really like certainty in that, in that respect. And we just hired the woman who founded SASB, um, Jean Rogers, who you should, Ross, you should have come back on, on the show. She's She's an amazing woman. Yes. And she really thinks a lot about like what to measure and how to measure it and what's really material. So she'd be, she'd be a great guest for you. Well, that's incredibly kind of you. If you'd be willing to introduce us to Jean, we'd love to have her on. Big fan. And I actually want to segue in a little bit into the third and what I think is actually the largest pushback on ESG and, you know, impact investing, SRI, Mm values-based investing, all right, this entire conscious capitalism movement, the biggest pushback is that there is this trade-off between our fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits for our investors in the shortest time frame and over the long term and social progress. Michael Porter, right, very famous professor at Harvard Business School, was a total fanboy growing up in college, got a picture with him when he came to the University of Minnesota. And one of my favorite TED Talks- he actually gave me a signed copy of his HBR article, Creating Shared Value. I still have it. It's one of my most prized possessions. I love that. <laughs> Just to be totally shameless about how much of a nerd I am. No, one of my I, favorite- actually, I actually wrote an article that I, for a long time, had sitting on my desk that I was hand, you know, like handing it out. It was, it was really good. He's impressive. Yeah. In his TED Talk, The Case for Letting Businesses Solve Social Problems, he says it, and I quote, Issue by issue, we are learning there is no trade-off between social progress and economic efficiency, end quote. So that's not me pushing back on the naysayers. That is Michael Porter telling us what the data is showing case by case by case. So I'm curious for you, what is it like being a very senior leader in a profit-driven company with a fiduciary responsibility to your investors engaging in ESG activities when there is this potential concern of these potential trade-offs? Sure. I mean, I think it's something we think a lot about and talk a lot about. I mean, we are fiduciaries and that's a really serious responsibility. But as I said before, I think as a fiduciary, our job is to grow strong companies and companies that are higher valued. And that is entirely consistent with what we're doing in the ESG space. So again, as I said before, like picking and choosing where you choose to insert yourself in what terms of like the programs that you take on 
if, if we were to go do everything, I'm sure we'd add a lot of cost and time and all of that. But instead, we're going in a hyper-targeted way into initiatives that we think make those companies stronger, right? And so we as fiduciaries feel like this is important to those companies, their underlying stakeholders, and ultimately important to our investors because we're serving them up ultimately an investment that ends up being hopefully better because that company is positioned for longer term success. And I'm oversimplifying, obviously, none of these things are ever black and white, but I think that that kind of that, that mentality guides our approach here. Thanks, Christine. I really appreciate you sharing. One final question on the ESG subject. You know, if you could wave a magic wand, what would the ideal, you know, ESG landscape look like across the industry? And what do you think needs to change for that reality to come to fruition? Well, so this might not be the sexiest answer, but I think if there was greater alignment across the industry around reporting, I think, I mean, I do think one of these areas where there is a lot of people needing to be hired and cost and whatnot to kind of just sort of deal with, again, a regulatory landscape that's still a little unclear. And it seems like every week there's a new reporting framework. And all of our investors, they have guidelines of their own and and targets of their own, which is great. You know, we love to see our investors actually mobilizing on these topics, but it it does create for us just a bureaucratic challenge of how how do you fulfill every single different request for information and having more greater consistency, I think, across our industry would be useful. So if I could wave my wand, I'd love more, you know, regulatory certainty and and greater consistency of reporting across the industry. I see. Having worked on both sides of the of that equation, right, of that regulatory equation being both in the public sector and the private sector now for many years, what advice would you offer, you know, investors listening to the podcast for doing their part to help drive that regulatory certainty, right, from our side of the table? I think it's not being afraid to be vocal, right? And I think the the regulators do welcome feedback. So I think sometimes it's easier just to say oh, it's not my fight, or or other bigger fish will will weigh in. But I think it's you know when when the industry mobilizes and speaks and and has a point of view, and it's not always consistent. But I think engagement tends to always be a better a better approach. And then I'd make a shameless pitch. It's not really exactly an answer to your question, but I do think if if the companies on this call made more of an effort to kind of explain their their impact and and what guides their approach and and leaned in a little bit more to talking about their ESG programs. I do think it would surprise people. It would surprise people in government how much, for example, our industry is focused on advancing decarbonization, right? So I think we need to get more of that out and we don't have as big a megaphone, but I think we need to use it. I completely agree, Christine. And my hope is that scholars of finance can act as a, a megaphone that continues to grow. I think you can. I mean, the more people that come into finance focused on these topics, right, asking the right questions, right, so that by the time they're sitting on boards and doing all these things, they're asking the right questions and nudging companies in the right direction. I think that I think it, I think you're going to have a lasting impact here. Thanks. I appreciate that. That I, th- that I think segues into my last couple of questions. I know we're coming up on time. Do you have any advice for young people, for students, early professionals who want to enter the industry and might be interested in ESG or making an impact in finance? Sure. I'll answer like ESG and finance somewhat separately. I'd say ESG, this is like the moment. You know, Anyone that wants to get into ESG, there, there are so many roles open right now and and every company in the world has a need, right, to focus on these topics. So if you're thinking about a career change or, or just starting out, it's a great moment to say, take me in, teach me, do a lot of independent reading. There's a great network. There's a lot of organizations that are focused on the topic. And I think if you're willing to kind of start at the ground level, it's an amazing, amazing 
field that's booming right now and you probably have a quite the trajectory you know we have we have some junior people here that have played just an outsized role because the the need is so high and the demand is so high so and then and then breaking into finance i'd say you know if you came out of school and you were a business major you kind of business school i mean it, it's a it's a more natural path i guess i would urge others to give finance a try i certainly never expected to find myself in finance and and yet it's to me it's sort of this wonderful platform to see lots of different companies across the economy and what makes them tick and thrive and what are the challenges that they face so i think it's a really it's such a fast paced and interesting field that i think more people should give it a look and i know there's like can be so much focus on sort of maybe you know tech companies or other startups and whatnot but there's so much innovation happening in finance right now that i think people that would surprise people so it's worth a look and i think breaking in ross you're good at this but like everyone should call you i mean your network's great people people need to just kind of call who they can reach out. You know, we all get a lot of cold calls. We know what that's like, but you've got to start somewhere. And I think you don't always land right the first time, but then you move your way around and it's a great place to have a career. I completely agree. I've, I've really enjoyed my roles in finance at Piper Sandler at SoFi, both in Standard mm-hmm. Investment Bank and a FinTech, now a, a public post-back IPO unicorn. Really excited to see that IPO, by the way. That was very cool. <laughs> Vested interest there. And I, you know, you're very kind to point all of our listeners to me. I would <laughs> say actually our relationship is a perfect data point. This is perfect evidence. Cole emailed you looking at your your background, your experience, and I thought. Christine Anderson would be perfect for us to learn from in our efforts trying to improve the reputation of the industry through creating a generation that comes in with a sense of purpose, wanting to make an impact, wanting to act with humility and compassion and integrity. And here we are, and now you're on the podcast even. So Ross is a good case study in persistence too. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> important. One final question, Christine. I know we're coming up on time here. You are so busy and you have so many requests on your time. You and other senior leaders at Blackstone are being so generous with your time and even your capital at Stollars of Finance, right? You mentoring and coaching us, coming on the podcast, the firm beginning to sponsor us, right? And and growing your support. I'd love to know what stood out to you about our organization and our mission. Of all the emails you get, why Scholars of Finance? I think just because I feel very aligned with the mission. I think as someone who part of my role being communications, it's frustrating, right? To see the industry that has so many wonderful people and and so much great work happening and so much innovation being sort of portrayed as something much different than it is. So I, I just think, you know, this is a an effort that many, many people across many different organizations need to play a role in and in, in shifting those perceptions. And I just thought it was like really creative to come up with this idea for an organization. And, and again, as someone who hopes to see more people and more not more untraditional people and diverse populations enter this field and give it a shot, I just thought the mission was, was wonderful. So thanks for making time to do this. Thanks, Christine. I appreciate the, the thank you, but it's one, it was one of those moments, I think, for all of us at Scholars of Finance when, and you hear about this in, in books from leaders of, of social change, you hear about it from politicians and their campaigns, you hear about it from entrepreneurs, right? When they start their company, mm-hmm. suddenly one day you see there is this glaring need in our society that no one is filling, no one's addressing. And if we were to step back and apply some time, effort, and energy to meeting this need, we could have a transformative impact on many, many people's lives. And so to me, it's it was very much a, a thing of calling. It felt like an almost like, an, like a moral imperative or a, an obligation to do this. Of course, it's only made possible by your support, by the support of our listeners and our community. So I'm incredibly grateful for you and everyone who's gotten behind the mission. 
And I'm really excited to continue learning from you in the years ahead as we get better and better at delivering on this mission together. Well, and, and likewise, look forward to spending more time with you and, and the Scholars of Finance organization. Thanks, Christine. Appreciate your time. Hope Thanks, you have an amazing day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.